invite you to turn this morning in the Gospel of Luke to chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. This evening, uh, Ralph Rebent from Farmington Hills OPC uh, and I are going to be exchanging pulpits, so I'll be headed to uh, Detroit this afternoon, and he will be coming here. Uh, Ralph Rebant's a wonderful brother, been at Farmington Hills for over 20 years, maybe 25, uh, maybe even a little longer already. And um, you'll you, just a delightful uh, uh, guy, and you'll enjoy uh, getting to know him and just hearing the word of God from Ralph this evening. And um, so just encourage you to, to come and encourage him as he leads, uh, leads you tonight in, uh, in worship. We're going to be uh, reading Luke chapter 8, and uh, I'm going to begin in verse 19, but our text is going to be verse 22 uh, through 25. Let's give our attention to God's word this morning. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word this morning. Father, you've gathered us together because you delight to teach us in the way that we should go, to teach us what it means to be followers of Christ. And so, Lord, again, we ask that you give us ears to hear as Jesus reveals himself to us this morning in his word. May we trust in him. In his name we pray. Amen. This is one of those classic uh, stories that you have in the Bible. This is uh, one where... Uh, if you have a, a children's storybook, there's sure to be a picture of uh, the wind and the waves and the panicking disciples and Jesus standing and speaking uh, to the wind and the waves uh, in his divine uh, power and authority. Uh, it's, a, it's a vivid, dramatic scene packed with unexpected turns and ripe with the stuff of real life. Uh, a peaceful evening sail erupts into chaos, and good men find themselves beyond the grasp of their competence and discover instead the power of God. It's a great story. It's a profoundly relevant story. Uh, it is not uh, allegorizing to, to say that this story directly applies to the realities of the storms and trials we face in our lives. Uh, Phil Riken in his commentary says, when the, what the disciples went through on the Sea of Galilee is something we all go through in life. Seas of difficulty, storms of trouble, people lose their jobs or suffer some other financial hardship, and they get tossed by waves of worry. 
They receive an unfavorable diagnosis or struggle with some chronic illness, and they are flooded with fear. They have painful interpersonal conflicts at home or in the church, and they feel as if they are sinking. They lose someone they love and are drowned in sorrow. We all must pass through the heavy seas of life's troubles. And some of you maybe are in those troubled seas even this morning. All of us are going to face them at some time. Job, if you remember, remember said, man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. It is a reality of life. But there are lessons to be learned in times of trouble, critical lessons of discipleship, and, and that is what we find happening this morning. Now, this event had a tremendous impact upon the disciples. The first three gospel writers all account of it and speak of it. Uh, if these men are going to be ambassadors of Christ in an antagonistic world, uh, if they're going to face the conflict that is going to come their way in faith and boldness, they need to know who Jesus is. They need to know who controls the circumstances of their life. And they're going to discover things about Jesus they had not really known before. They're going to see what a great, mighty God their Savior really is. And so first this morning, we're just going to look at the event, and then we're going to look at the effect of that event in their life, and then we'll look at the application. First, uh, the event in itself. In each of the, uh, the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this story takes place in the context of Jesus uh, giving instructions on discipleship what it means to follow him. In the gospel of Matthew, for instance, some men came to him and said, we'd like to follow you, but we need to first go, and I need to go bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead go bury their dead. You come and follow me. Uh, that discipleship means that Jesus Christ has priority in your life. In, um, in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus has uh, just had this experience of his mother and brothers, messengers coming and saying that they're concerned about him. Uh, they think that maybe Jesus is has just gone a little too far. Maybe Jesus is just wearing himself out. And Jesus gives this startling statement, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. My mother and my brothers, my family, are those who follow me, are those who hear my word and put it into practice. Well, the disciples are doing that. These men have left everything, and they're following Jesus. And so when Jesus gets into the boat, they get into the boat. When Jesus says, let us go to the other side of the lake, they, um, they get to work. They push off. Um, they're ready to go where Jesus goes. They are following him. But they do not realize, of course, as they shove that boat off into the calm uh, sea, it's evening time. We know that from the other Gospels. It's been a long day of ministry. They do not realize as they push the boat off that they are in for a great lesson in discipleship. Uh, because these men did not climb into the boat alone. They climbed in with all their false assumptions and all their unbelief came along with them. And Jesus wants to rid them of some of that baggage. Well, it all started out so well. We read, so they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. There's a Dutch word for this, kazelich. This is nice. This is calm and comfortable. This is serene. It's a nice, gentle evening breeze. It's a beautiful night to be on the water. I, um, I love being on the water. I love um, 
being on a boat and at nighttime when it's just, it's just calm, there's a breeze and maybe the, the moon is coming up and you have all the evening aromas and you can smell the, the water and whatever's drafting across the lake. Um, it's a wonderful scene. The disciples are enjoying this scene. They're, in a sense, in control of the situation here. They're the experts, at least several of them, spent countless hours on the lake. They are boatsmen. They know their way around. Uh, they know how to handle this boat. They're, they're competent here. And the only sounds then would be the gentle ripple of the sail, the soft splash of the water on the, off the bow of the boat, and the low hum of the men's voices as they discussed the events of the day. I can imagine a Peter lighting up the first century equivalent of a lucky strike and just enjoying the evening. That's the kind of night it is. It's a wonderful scene, and Jesus goes and takes a nap on a cushion in the back of the boat, and then it all blows up. Suddenly, unexpected and overwhelming trouble, a windstorm came down upon the lake. The Sea of Galilee is known for these uh, events. They're, it's nestled between the mountains, and because it sits at a very low level, it's sort of a vacuum for when you have uh, different changes in temperatures, wind will sweep down the, through those mountains and just uh, blast upon the lake. And so this will just be a windstorm. There won't be clouds or thunder uh, or lightning. It's, it's not a, a storm front in that sense moving through. It's, it's just a wind, uh, wind storm. And you'll suddenly find yourself on a beautiful calm evening like this facing gale force winds and 10-foot waves. This is not a little deal. And so in a moment, their evening cruise has turned into a battle for their life. The wind is raging. The waves are crashing into the boat. All three accounts speak of water filling the boat. You don't need to be an expert boatsman to realize uh, that is not a good turn of events. And so um, this is not an orderly event. Crises seldom are. Excuse me just a minute. Right, crises are not um, nice, calm, orderly events. I'm having a trouble. There we go. Um, Alistair Begg just noted that uh, it's almost certain that uh, the d disciples didn't decide to convene a committee and uh, and ask one of the men to go and uh, make this appeal. Uh, someone going over to Jesus and gently nudging him. Uh, Excuse me, Lord. Lord, hate to wake you up. Um, we seem to be having some difficulty keeping the lake out of the boat. And we were just wondering if you could help us out here, right? Sorry to trouble you. Uh, that is not how it went. It was pandemonium. It's not an orderly event at all. Their men are screaming. In each of the three accounts, you'll hear a, a different terms used for Jesus. So in one gospel, it's, it's uh, master, master. Uh, in another uh, gospel, it's Lord. In another uh, gospel, it's teacher. Everybody's crying out. It's pandemonium. The men are drenched with water and with dread. The ship is rolling. Uh, they are in danger of sinking. That's the event. That's where these men find themselves. And it's a difficult experience because uh, not only is, is there physical danger involved, but there are spiritual dilemmas that they face. Uh, what are the things that, what, what is the impact of this storm? What's the effect of it? Well, there's several here we can point to. One, it shattered their illusions of competence. Again, as I said, these are, these are experienced 
boatsmen. They know their way around a boat. They've spent countless hours on the sea. And there had to be a little bit of pride as Jesus goes and takes a nap and leaves this to them. They're helping Jesus out. They are, Jesus is trusting them, trusting their competence. If, you, um, if you've had the experience of maybe driving through the night, going on a family vacation, I used to enjoy, we had this big old Chevy uh, conversion van, and we'd uh, lay out the bed in the back, and the kids would all go to sleep in, in, the, in the back, and um, Joanne would doze off uh, on the side, and, and I was the man. <laughs> right, I had my cup of coffee, uh, listened to a little AM radio, um, and just driving through the night, and, and I had this, right? They trusted me, and um, it was a great experience, right? I was, I, was, I was the man. That's what these guys are feeling, right? They're the men. Jesus is back there sleeping. They've got this. This is something they could give to Jesus, their expertise, their skill, their ability, their competence, and the wind blows that all away. Suddenly, they realize they are far beyond their abilities. Their competence has run out. It's utterly useless to them in the face of this great storm. One of the most difficult aspects of a great trial is your loss of a sense of being in control. We don't even really realize that we assume we are in control until we lose it. And then you feel that profoundly, that things are spinning out of control, that what you thought you had, what you thought was your competence has just disappeared. The trials, you see, expose the truth, both the the fallacy of our illusions and the truth that we live in a dangerous world where we do not have the ability to hold things together. And so the disease came and stole away your strength, your energy, your ability. The economic trial came and stole away your savings, stole, stole away your financial future. The marriage failed and stole away your your happiness and sort of your, your home. The moral failure came and stole away your reputation, your sense of worth. And you're at loss. You feel like uh, you're, you're helpless, you're hopeless. See, the most honest stance before God then is, is really a stance of desperation. We're made out of dust. And we're going to return to dust. And the best of our abilities is no match for the things that can come to us in this life. The most sincere cry is help. Help. The most candid confession is, Lord, I can't do this. I can't make it. I don't have the ability. Now, it's not an easy thing to come to. It's never easy to to realize that you're at the end of yourself. You're exposed as helpless. You can't do it. That you're in desperate need of divine aid. It almost always takes a divine trial or a trial of some sort from God. Almost no one in the moment of their strength, you see, uh, or in the moment of their competence says, Lord, help. We just don't naturally tend to lean on God when we're doing okay. But God sends trials. And then suddenly we find that things aren't what we thought they were, and our competence and our ability is nothing like we had imagined that it would be. And it is there that we're going to actually experience the truth of Jesus. 
Now, it strikes me that the disciples did not want to go there. If you would have asked them before they got into the boat, just need to let you know, before we get to the other side of the lake, uh, there's going to be a violent storm, 10-foot waves. Uh, there will be water crashing into the boat. You're going to get drenched. You're going to think you're going to die. Who wants to go? <laughs> they would have said, we'll walk. <clears throat> Peter probably would have said, I'm in, right? I, I got this. But everybody else, hey, nobody, nobody signs up for this. And Jesus didn't tell them about it. He said, let's get into the boat. So they got into the boat. Let's go to the other side of the lake. It was a beautiful evening. The men all thought, this is going to be a breeze. But Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. And he knows exactly what he's going to teach them in the trial. And so he goes to sleep. He has no concern in the world. God knows what he's about. John Newton has uh, written this wonderful poem, Prayer Answered by Crosses. I've used it before, but it, it's, it's so true. He writes, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour he'd at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. That's all we want. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I'd schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. He's referring there to Job outside the city. And this one little plant grows up to give him shade, and then that dies. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue this worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayers for grace and faith. And some of you are thinking, okay, I'm not going to be praying for grace and faith. But listen to what Newton says. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free. And break thy schemes of earthly joys that thou might seek thy all in me. Do you want to know Jesus? Do you want to really know him? Do you want to find your joy in him, your peace in him? Do you want to experience his power? You see, we cannot delight both in the power of God and in the power of our own competence. And we will not truly rejoice in the power and goodness of God until we understand our own weakness. And so this storm comes to shatter their illusions of competence. It, it comes, secondly, to challenge their assumptions concerning discipleship. You see, they get into that boat with assumptions of what discipleship will look like. Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What's... What's in it for us? Remember, um, these are the guys who've been arguing and who will continue to argue about who gets the best seat when Jesus takes the throne. Discipleship in their minds looks like privilege. It looks like honor. It looks like accomplishment. It does not look like this. In fact, I think many of us have that sort of assumption that if we're doing it right then discipleship will feel like smooth sailing. And if the sailing is less than smooth, if the sailing is rocky, if it is even dangerous, we must have done something wrong. And then we ask, Lord, just show me what I did wrong. I'll turn this thing around. 
Show me what I did wrong so we can just get back to the, to, to the smooth stuff, to, to what discipleship ought to be like. We know that they think that something has gone horribly missed because they, they charge Jesus, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care that we're drowning? Don't you care that we're perishing? In their minds, you see, it's impossible that they could both be drenching wet in this storm, about to die, and it could be true that Jesus cares for them. The presence of the trouble must mean the absence of care. It's exactly what we assume. What did I do wrong? Why is God punishing me? Just show me and I'll acknowledge it. I'll confess it. I'll fix it. We can't imagine that God is loving us in the trial, and that God has brought us there precisely because of his kindness, because of his love. And so you see Jesus breaking through their assumptions of what it means to be a disciple. Let me ask you this question. When were the disciples more safe? When they were sailing peacefully under the pleasant moon and the gentle breezes, or when the waves are crashing into the boat and the water was was filling the, the boat. When were they more safe? Well, they were, they were perfectly safe in both accounts. Well, when were they more loved? When everything was going smoothly and they were just enjoying a quiet ride on the lake and Jesus was sleeping in the back and they were just doing their thing? They felt loved then. They felt like they belonged. They felt appreciated maybe. But the truth is, you see, they weren't any more loved then than they were. In fact, you could make the argument that, that God was loving them really well when the storm came. He sent it, obviously. And that God was loving them well because he wants them to see the glory of Jesus. It's the same thing we read in, in John chapter 11 when Lazarus gets sick and they, the, the sisters send a message. He's sick, and Jesus says, he'll, he'll be okay. And then he dies, and the disciples are like, Lord, What happened? And Jesus says, this is, I did this for you. So you might see my glory. You see, this is a great lesson in discipleship. It challenges their assumptions about what it means to follow Jesus. Peter writes, do not be, do not be alarmed when trials come as though something strange were happening to you. Well, where did he learn that? He learned it on the Sea of Galilee. This was not strange, but God was at work, and he was at work to give them a view of the glory of Jesus. And so they went and they woke him, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. Mark writes, there was great calm. Sometimes when you read the Bible like this, you just got to stand and just, bam! Yes, right? That's awesome. Jesus was sleeping. What a wonderful thought of Jesus after a long day of ministry. God in flesh, sleeping in the back of the boat. He's tired. When he went to sleep, everything was calm. And he wakes up to utter chaos and pandemonium. The winds howling, the waves are crashing, the disciples are frantically screaming for him to help, charging him with not caring. And he gets up from his nap and he turns to the wind and the waves and basically says, hey, knock it off. 
and they do. Bam! That, <laughs> that is so incredible. You need to love that about Jesus. Knock it off. Win. Done. That's it. My dad had a saying. When I say it, when I say that's it, that's it. And he meant it, right? So we could have fun. We could play. But my dad said, all right, that's it. And he meant, he meant that, that that was it. Jesus says, okay, that's enough. Knock it off. <laughs> it's not a parable. It's not an allegory. It's not a metaphor. It's Jesus talking to the wind and the waves like a parent talking to an unruly five-year-old saying, uh, that's enough, and getting instantaneous, absolute, miraculous compliance. The wind immediately stops. The waves are immediately stilled. All the laws of nature bow to their maker's will. The voice that created them now commands them, and they must obey. <laughs> it is such a fantastic scene. When I was reading this, I was, the only thing I could liken it to is if you've ever been on a sports uh, team where one of the members of the team makes a fantastic play. It's something just so marvelous, so so amazingly good that there just erupts from your mouth a roar of approval. If you're a fan, you'll have a, a similar experience, but it's, it's, it's a bit different when you're on the, on the field with the person. Just watching, I think, last week, and um, uh, Iglesias, Tiger Shortstop, made this incredible, ridiculous play. And um, you see uh, Miggy catching the ball at first base and roaring with approval. Because the whole team gets pumped up by that because that's our guy. That's why we're going to win. We have someone who is able to do things like that. Well, that's exactly how we ought to feel about this story. That's my Lord. That's my Savior. That's Jesus. That's why we're going to win. Because the one whom, to whom we belong is able to say to wind and waves, be still, peace, and they listen. He's Lord, absolute master. Everything, every atom in the universe must obey his divine sovereign voice. Boy, you need to love that. Let's apply it. Because the story ends with two great questions. The first one is asked by Jesus, where's your faith? The second one asked by the disciples, who is this? I'd like to take the second one first. Who is this? In one moment, they're terrified by the storm. The next moment, they're terrified by the calm. In fact, you might say, they would, in some sense, rather the storm back. At least they have categories for the storm. This is what wind does. These are, this is what waves do. They don't have a category for this. They don't have a category for the calm. They're stunned, absolutely stunned by what Jesus did. Now remember, these men have seen Jesus do amazing things. They've seen him speak to lepers and say, I am willing, be clean, and a man full of leprosy was clean. They've seen Jesus give sight to blind men. They, see, they have seen Jesus say to a dead man on the way out of the city of Nain, rise up. And he did. So, so they've got a pretty expanded category of uh, what Jesus is able to do. But they do not have a category for this. 
Because you see, it's one thing for, uh, for Jesus to talk to a person, even a dead person, and get a response. But he's talking to the elements. He's talking to the wind and to water. Who talks to wind and water? Crazy people. Right? Just mumbling along as they're walking around downtown. People who've lost it, maybe. People who don't understand that wind can't hear. Waves don't have ears. And yet Jesus says to the wind, be still. And to the waves, be quiet. And they do it. It explodes the categories they had for Jesus. Who is this? And they know the answer. They know the answer. This is God in flesh. Maybe they don't have it all put together systematically in their, in their theology, but they know there's only one who commands the, the, the waves. They know there's Psalter. The Lord speaks. He thunders over the waters. The Lord commands. The sea is his. He made it. He sets its boundaries. God is the God over the deep. Because he made it. They know who this is. This is, this is God himself in flesh in their boat. <laughs> That's, that is a staggering revelation. It's not an answer to a trivia question. Who is this? Oh, I know, I know, I know. It's God. This has staggering implications. If Jesus is God in human flesh, then God has invaded your world. You're not alone with your circumstances. There's a God who's invaded this world. And that means, you see, that there is an ultimate truth that's deeper than the circumstances. There's an almighty power greater than your circumstances, greater than the danger. Whatever trials that we face are trials that have been divinely ordained and orchestrated in the hands of the God uh, who is. But more beautifully, you are in the hands of the God who is. You see, sometimes it's not that much of a comfort to know that God has ordained this trial. And sometimes that's a, actually that becomes a great challenge. Who would do this? This awful thing. Would God orchestrate this for my child? Would he design this cancer in my body? Would God orchestrate the devastation of my marriage? That's not an easy thing. You see, but, but the biblical response to that isn't simply, hey, God did it, suck it up. That's not the biblical response. Bow to sovereignty. That's not the biblical response. It's bow to Jesus. Bow to Jesus. You see, the question here is not just about an ultimate truth, but ultimate trust. Jesus says, where's your faith? Where's your faith? 
And Matthew, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Mark, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? That is a very challenging question. Some could easily take offense at it. Where's our faith? Jesus, we were going to drown. Did you not see the waves? Did you not see the water in the boat? Jesus, boats don't float that way. Where's our faith? When the whole thing was collapsing? When death was staring us in the face and you were asleep on the cushions? Jesus, have you checked my bank account? Do you realize what's happened to me financially? Jesus, do you know what the doctor said? Do you, do you understand what cancer can do? Do you, do you realize what my marriage has become? Do you, do you know how hard it is to live in this circumstance? And, you, and you're going to say, where's my faith? Yeah. Yep, that's what he's going to say. You see, the men were saying, Jesus, don't you see the reality of the circumstance? And Jesus is going to respond, don't, didn't you see me? I was right there. I was right there in the boat with you. Why didn't you trust me? Why, why were you so afraid? Notice that's specifically what Jesus challenges. Why were you so afraid? He's not rebuking them for being wet. Right? The waves came in, they got drenched. Jesus doesn't rebuke us for hurting. Jesus doesn't rebuke us for noticing the reality of the circumstances. He doesn't rebuke us when we say it's hard. He doesn't rebuke us when we experience the reality of the circumstance, the reality of the situation, when we're brokenhearted by the, by the sin or by the loss. He, he, doesn't, he never rebukes people for experiencing the reality of the circumstance. What he points his finger at is the fear. Why are you so afraid? Fear is an awful thing. Fear is, it just, it grabs hold of you. It grabs hold of your mind and, and your heart and your stomach. I get sick to the stomach when I'm really afraid. I can't eat. And, and it, you can't fight it with reason. Fear doesn't submit to reason. It's nearly impossible to reason with your fear and, to, and to, to make it go away. It's because, you see, fear is not, it's not rational. It just lays a hold of you, and all you can think about is, is the thing that you're afraid of. The only thing that can conquer fear, it's not reason, trust. It's trust in the love of God, the faithfulness of God, the care of God. So the psalmist says in Psalm 56 verse 3, when I am afraid, then I will what? I will put my trust in you. You see the psalmist saying over and over again, the enemies are, are, are all around and, it, and it's, it's hard and it's, 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 it's scary, but in your word I will put my hope. 
I will put my trust in you. That's the only thing that can, it's the only thing that can handle fear. Not just handle it, but drive it away. Alistair Begg tells a story of a friend of his, a woman, a woman had been listening to his sermon series on the book of Joshua and just recognized that she did not have the faith that Joshua had. Remember, what did God say to Joshua? Do not be afraid. Be strong. Be very courageous. Why? Because I am with you. As Joshua was going to go do some very scary things. And she realized she did not have that kind of faith, and so she asked, she prayed that God would, would give her the, just a deeper knowledge of him and greater faith. And a few weeks later, she went to the doctor because she had a little bump on her ankle, and the doctors found out that it's a rare form of melanoma is going to take um, chemo, a full extensive treatment of chemo, and then everything they could, they could throw at it with radiation, and then another round of full chemo, and then another round of radiation. She called her sister to tell her the news, and her her sister was a few years older than her, and, and, and her sister informed her that she was not feeling that well herself. In fact, had a doctor's appointment that afternoon. The doctors found that she was full of cancer, and she died seven days later. Alistair was able to talk to her when she was just beginning her second round of chemo. And she said, in all of this, God has been talking to me in all my devotions and my times of worship and the things I'm reading, the counsel that friends are giving to me. And Alistair says, well, what is he saying? And she said, he's only saying one thing. Trust me. Trust me. And Alistair said, well, what are you doing? She says, I'm, I'm learning how to trust him. Trust me. See, that, this is usually how it goes in our trials, isn't it? That God very rarely gives us explanations. He it would be so helpful if he would, if he would say, here's the lesson, then here's the objectives. At the end of this lesson, you will have, this is why, wouldn't that be wonderful? You say, okay, this is really hard, but that's a pretty cool plan. He doesn't do that. Why? Because you see, that would just throw us, in a sense, back into our competence. Okay, we've got this. He wants us to throw us, he wants to throw us on Jesus. Just Jesus. He doesn't give us a parting of the veil so that we see the divine design and we see the purpose. We see it in an ultimate sense, but not a specific sense. We just have the trial and this word from the Lord, don't you trust me? Will you trust me? And of course the answer then would be, well, why would we? Why should we? Why can Jesus, why does Jesus have this, the audacity to say to these men, um, where is your faith as if they ought to not have been afraid? Jesus is like, this, gentlemen, this doesn't make sense. Why does he say it that way? Because Jesus gave his word. Come, let us go to the other side of the lake. Not to the bottom of the lake, the other side of the lake. They had his word. They were, they were men who had seen the things that he could do. God gives us even more than they had. We have the word of God. We have the promises that God will be with us and go with us. We have the redemption of God. We have the knowledge that Jesus Christ loved us and gave his own life for us and, and his assurance that he will never leave us. His love will never let us go. Nothing can separate us from his love. You can rest your weary soul in him. There's every reason to trust Jesus. Now, now we, don't have to, we still won't understand it all, but, but when we take uh, our fear to the foot of the cross and see the love that, that bore our suffering so that we could be delivered, then we can believe we're going to be delivered. 
God says in Isaiah chapter 43, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. The living God says that to you, his child. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Notice he doesn't say, you are mine. You shall never pass through the waters. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Doesn't mean they will not overwhelm your competence. They will definitely overwhelm your competence. But they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Why? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's why we can trust. You see, we're called to trust a person. We're called to trust the love of God in Jesus Christ. Not just a divine power, not just sovereignty, but sovereignty wrapped in love, sovereignty covered with mercy and grace and compassion for you in your need. We have a Savior who understands exactly what you're going through, who has experienced the trials that you're experiencing, who knows what it is to be weak, but a Jesus who's promised to use all of the glorious resources of God God himself because he is God and all authority and power belong to him and that Jesus promises all that divine authority and power on your behalf and he's going to lead you home no matter how troubled the sea he's going to lead you home got an email just this past week from Kathy Marsh member here and she's invited me to, to read this to you so she just writes, Dear Harvest, I wanted to let you know that I praise the Lord because of you. You helped me through a very hard time, not only financially, but also by your prayers and encouraging words. I can't thank you enough. I had no idea how much being unemployed could hurt. And I didn't understand why it had to last so long. A friend of mine said there must have been some character building going on. I don't know about that, but I did grow in trusting the Lord more. I also wanted to encourage anyone who is going through a hard time with the encouragement I received from the Lord. Psalm 142, verses 1 through 3. Was and still is a comfort to me, especially verse 3. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who know my way. Is that good news? When my spirit grows faint within me, and it does grow faint, it is you, the living God, who knows my way. She goes on, I'm listening again to redemptive suffering. It blessed me then and is blessing me again. And I encourage you to listen to it again. Charles Wesley was on his way home from America. He'd been there for a missionary journey. It hadn't gone that well. They were on their way back to England and there was a great storm, 1763, 36, excuse me. And the passengers thought they were going to be uh, drowned and Charles prayed, not specifically for deliverance, but for the faith to comfort the passengers well, the, form, the, the storm uh, did finally cease and they made their way safely to England and he wrote these words. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the near waters roll and while the tempest still is high, hide me, O oh my Savior, hide till the storm of life is past, safe into the haven guide. 
and oh, receive my soul at last. And friends, that's the absolute confidence we have because Jesus is our Savior. Let's trust in him. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you for this magnificent revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. Father, you know the trials that your people are in today. You know the trials that are going to come our way. We have no idea of the storm that's making its way in our direction. And, and yet, Father, I thank you that no matter what you bring, we have a Savior who is in the boat with us. We're not alone. And we have a Savior who is orchestrating the events of our life, the circumstances of our days, to lead us safely into our eternal haven. Oh, we thank you that we can hide ourselves in Jesus. Lord, you know the hearts that are hurting so badly this morning. You know the fears that threaten to overwhelm us. And I pray, Lord God, that you would give the grace that we might believe and that we would trust Jesus. Though we don't have any of the answers, we have no idea how this thing is going to work itself out. But what we do know is that Jesus is with us. And when he speaks the word, this trial will be over. And until he speaks the word, his love will be sufficient. Father, I pray if there are being here this morning who have no idea who this Jesus is, but are sensing the danger of their life without him. I pray, Father God, that you give that person today the ability to confess their weakness, to acknowledge their sin, and to cry out to Jesus. Father, may we encourage each other well as we point each other to our Savior, our Lord. Oh God, we thank you for Jesus. May we walk in him and live in him and trust in him until we see him face to face. And God's people said, Amen.